0: Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle's programme all about the built environment. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up...
1: When historians write about it, we'll realise this was one of the most difficult periods in American history to be an American mayor.
0: We head to City Hall today as we bring you discussions with two municipal mayors and one runner-up about their cities, their values and their ambitions for the future. From the oldest city in Finland to a fast-growing metropolis in Texas and to Canada's capital city too. That's all coming up over the next 30 minutes right here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. We start today in Finland's oldest city. On the country's southwest coast sits Turku, a municipality known for its medieval castle and home to the densest archipelago in the world. It's also home to Mina Arve, the city's mayor who's bringing her ambitions for sustainability, well-being and culture to its citizens. And I'm pleased to say that Mayor Arve joins me now. Thank you so much for coming in today. Now, let's start with what you think makes Turku unique. How do you characterise the city when you're telling its story? What, in your opinion, attracts people to living there?
2: I always like to describe our city's soul In my opinion, it's about three elements, which is the soul of Turku. And it's about sea, science and culture. And sea is something from the very early 80s, people gathered around the sea to trade goods. And nowadays, even today, it's bringing the great prosperity to our area while we are having a big shipyard, which is building the greatest and the most amazing cruisers in the world the science. We had the first university in Finland uh, and uh, being educational hub of Finland for several hundreds of years. Even today, we have 40,000 students with three universities in the city. So it's very young and dynamic, but also bringing us a lot of confidence to work with universities and with science. And we try to base all our decisions on the science, for instance, with our climate decisions. And then the culture, of course, where you have kind of historical cultural city, but also very much investments into the culture in a way, because I believe strongly in that, that culture is a way to transform the city and bring people together and have more inclusivity with our residents.
0: Well, I want to quiz you more about the cultural side, but first of all, yourself. So how did you become the mayor of the city? What's your background?
2: I've been a member of the city council since 2005. I became a mayor six years ago, so this is my second term. I've been building the city for more sustainable, for more inclusive and more growing based on economic growth also. So I think that that's where we are going and heading. And my background is also half public sector. I've been a nurse when I was younger. (laughs) I've studied economics. I'm a master of economics. I've been working with the businesses and working with the national politics as well.
0: Turku, like many cities in the Nordic region, has very big ambitions around net zero, around sustainability. Tell us what those targets are.
2: We are going to be carbon neutral city by 2029, which is the year when Turku is, will celebrate its 800 years anniversary. And we will going to be carbon negative afterwards, which means that we are not anymore warming up the climate, but we are cooling it. So we are going to really have a lot of impact into the environment in many ways. And what I think is most important, we are not having this goal only, but we are working with that. And we have already reduced our emissions by nearly 60%. It's from the 1990 levels, and that's a great achievement. So we are well on track.
0: Tell me, how have you done that? I think many people listening will be sitting in cities that are nowhere near where you are in that movement. How has a city managed to deliver such ambitious targets?
2: We have been basing, first of all, all our decisions to science, as I was telling earlier. We have been very unanimously in city council to setting these targets. So we have a lot of people are really having this as an important issue, not only our decision makers, but also as our citizens. And we have invested already like more than 500 million euros to our energy system to transform it based on renewables and in a sustainable energy supply. So that's been the biggest Chains where we have done the most reduction in, in emissions so, so far.
0: Let's just unpack one of those things. So energy, you're quite far north, even though you're the north, north of Finland. So can you use solar? Are you doing geothermal? How are you getting your energy?
2: We have a different kind of palette of different sources because, yes, we are in a cold mm. region. We are basing our warming system to distance heating And that's where we are having different solutions. We are having a bio-based production, we have heat pumps, thermal, and we are piloting all the time different kinds of new possibilities for the future. I give you one really nice example, which is also a very good example of circular economy. So we have a new water waste management plan, not anymore so new, some seven years ago, which is first of all a very great thing for our archipelago sea. So it's the protection of the nature and protection of the sea. And we have heat pumps there. So we are basically taking the heat out of the wastewater, and that is producing about 10% of our distance heating for the area. So it's quite a remarkable amount from wastewater to heating people's houses. And then in the end of that production, there is also some sludge, and that will be used to biogas production. So you have a beautiful example of how to protect the nature, how to heat with very, very effective ways and then you have the end result for the circular economy like the biogas so that's what we try to do in all other sectors as well
0: now we touched on culture before and I wonder if this is the other side of the coin as you might say in English so that one side is like pushing people to be better and thinking about their responsibilities but a city needs to be fun it needs to offer some pleasure and escape and moments of magic is this part and parcel of the same Ambitious idea in a way that you know we can deliver on these big numbers, but let 's make the place feel more fun at the same time
2: absolutely cities need to be fun places, and there has to be places where people encountered other people and interact with people you have places where they go and all the time something happening around and I think there is a connection in many ways with these two things because I think first of all that we are anyway trying to also get some international talents and talented people to move into Turku for work to our companies and I strongly believe that the younger people also reflect very strongly with values their own values with the values that cities have So it's not only that we will have the place to work. There are several places in several cities where you can actually find a lot of fun anyway. But then there has to be also connection with the values for the sustainability. And the younger people especially are more conscious of what kind of values cities provide.
0: I know that one of the big things has been looking at a new large museum project. Where is that at at the moment?
2: It will be the Museum of History and Future. So it will be kind of an interesting new way of thinking that what museums will be in the future. We'll provide our history, our history as a city. It's also a big part of our country's history. We just opened an international architectural competition and it's open. And one of the biggest things I'm looking forward, first of all, it's an amazing place. It will be just beside our medieval castle. So it will be quite challenging for the architects to think about also how to fit something really modern. But also I look forward to see what kind of ideas architects will have that how the space, the public space and urban spaces around it can tempt people to meet each other's and face each other's and kind of build community also around that. So it would be not just a place where you experience arts or that kind of fun things for yourself, but you also meet with other people and build that kind of connection with other people. And I have an idea of kind of renaissance of the cities in this way, that the renaissance of community in cities because quite often you hear that cities are places where people are more selfish and they just go and rush everywhere and and they don't have time to even say hello to your neighbors but i think that's not the way it should be and that's where we want to build also that kind of community
0: and finally just tell me there's this notion of turkuness something coming from your city you're obviously going out in a quite ambassadorial way to tell the story of Turku. Is that because you think that you, in a way, can do some soft power around the things that you're doing and tell the story of Turku around the world?
2: I think it's very important to have kind of inspiration. I'm getting inspiration from other mayors and I hope that I can be an inspiration for some of my colleagues as well. What comes to sustainability, what comes to the climate targets, what comes to the inclusivity with the residents. And I think it's very, very important to learn and see what's happening all over the world. And I want to tell also my city story because I think that's quite important in this role as well, because we've learned to work together we are not that polarized in city level. In Turku, we are having very good connections with all kind of political parties. A shared mayor program, and most of all, I think having strength from our residents, which is the biggest strength that we have, is also bringing their voice to the all parts of the globe.
0: Mayor Minna Arve, thank you for joining me here on the Urbanist. To Dallas now, where in May this year, voters granted a second term to their incumbent mayor, Eric Johnson. Mayor Johnson joined us at our annual Quality of Life conference in Munich in September, and we heard some of his panel on the urbanist last month too. We also spoke to Mayor Johnson in the lead-up to the event to get a feel for what made him so appealing to voters and what his plans for Dallas are during his remaining time in office. Mayor Johnson began by explaining why he thinks voters chose to grant him a second term in City Hall.
1: I think when it's all said and done, this period that we've been living through that started with the onset of COVID-19 through today, really, when historians write about it, we'll realize this was one of the most difficult periods in American history to be an American mayor. And I think you saw so many mayors of, cities of all sizes, but you know, particularly the big cities in America, choose not to run for reelection or run for reelection and get defeated. And really, incumbents really rarely lose in American politics at that level. But you saw it happen at levels you haven't seen before, because I believe this period has been so uniquely challenging on so many levels all at the same time. I was fortunate in that here in Dallas, I was able to convince the electorate to trust my judgment when it came to public safety, despite a conversation that was happening in the wake of George Floyd's killing that I didn't think was going to work well for Dallas. I think my holding the line on public safety when it wasn't popular in combination with the fact that our economy really emerged from the pandemic before anybody else's and came out of it pretty strong. We added $14 billion in new development to the city over the past four years, which is probably the fastest clip we've had in a long time. I think people felt good about all the things that typically matter in an American election. They felt good about the economy. They felt good about public safety. And I think when it came time to make a decision about reelecting the mayor, there wasn't a strong case to make for change. And that's how we ended up with 98.7% of the vote. (laughs) I want to
0: definitely talk to you about security, public security, but before we do that, just for listeners around the world, just tell us a little bit about Dallas. When you talk about your city as you go out around the country and around the world, how do you describe
1: Dallas? Dallas is sort of the quintessential sunbelt city that you read about, you know, in terms of all the rapid growth that's happening in the United States, in certain parts of the country The net migration patterns in the United States are that the coastal regions, New York, California in particular, are losing population to cities that are sort of in the middle of the country and that are more Southern. Dallas's challenge is that we are in a very unique situation in terms of American cities. And that is that we are the anchor, the city of Dallas is the anchor at one point. 3 to 1.4 million people of a metro area that's actually the fourth largest metro area in the country it's a metro area of 8 million people so we've got a lot of people for whom dallas is sort of the de facto center of their universe but are not within the city limits of dallas they put a strain on our infrastructure they contribute in some ways to our economy but if they don't live in dallas and they reside someplace else and they own a home someplace else or property someplace else, we're not able to tax their property, which is the the workhorse tax of Texas. We don't have an income tax in this entire state. So the property tax is the workhorse tax. If your property is located outside of the city of Dallas, we can't tax it. So you can sort of figure out the conundrum there. We are growing like crazy population-wise. Our infrastructure needs to keep up, but it's hard to do when we really aren't seeing the same population growth that the surrounding municipalities are which actually sort of creates this death spiral if you will of taxation which is you're taxing them more so that makes them want to flee to the suburbs where the taxes are lower and that exacerbates your problem so that's our big challenge i want to come back to that issue
0: of public safety and policing because as you mentioned there that the killing of george floyd You were definitely not somebody who was supportive of the idea of defunding the police. In fact, the opposite. Tell me what the pressures were at that time when so many things were going on. And what made you think that actually there was a different way through this, making sure that you looked after your city?
1: The years between 1990 and 1994, when I was a high school student in Dallas growing up, were the most violent years on record in the United States of America in terms of homicides. We hit over 500 homicides one of those years in Dallas when our population wasn't anywhere near what it is today. So think about that. I grew up during that time when we literally feared for our lives when we walked out of the front door of our homes. And so I had that in my mind when I started to see violent crime ticking up during my mayoralty. I said, I just never want to go back to those days where kids have to be afraid and the gunshots to keep kids up at night and they're afraid to play outside. And so when the defund the police conversation started, what I was able to do that I think a lot of mayors would not have been able to do had they not had my background is I had the confidence from growing up in the types of communities that were being affected most by the violent crime to say, That the defund the police movement is being led by and driven by uh, mostly affluent, liberal-minded folks who do not live in the communities that are affected by the violence. And that this is not something that is being asked for or pushed by the actual people of color primarily who are living in these communities that are being ravaged by violence. I had that information in my brain anecdotally from growing up and from having connectivity To the community, that was not something that I had to go and poll or wait for a white paper to be written about. I just knew immediately that this movement to defund the police was wrongheaded. And I said it publicly, we won't do it here and I won't support it. And it got me protests outside my home for days on end. And it was a terrible time for my family, my children, my wife were all very frightened, which is what the protesters wanted. They actually said that they wanted me and my family to experience the fear that people of color experience at the hands of the police. I held my ground, though, because I really believed that this was a bad idea for Dallas and that it was going to cause particularly communities of color to be less safe. Here we are two years later, and I think we've been proven right. We're the only city in the top 10 in the United States that had every form of violent crime that's tracked by the FBI decline year over year. For the past two years and we're in the middle of a third year of overall violent crime decreases and i attribute that to the fact that we never went down that defund path and the morale of our police department stayed high our community remained supportive of the police department and uh, we've just had a lot of success when it comes to public safety as a result a simple question but you know, you've stood for re-election and
0: won I can hear in your voice that there's passion about what you do. But what do you get from being a mayor? What makes it exciting for you? What's the appeal to you about being mayor of Dallas?
1: I honestly didn't know what I was getting into when I ran for mayor the first time in terms of how rewarding this job is. I knew how important the work was, which is why I ran. I felt like Dallas was at an inflection point and really needed a certain type of leader. I couldn't have foreseen, though, just how needed I was in terms of the public safety issues that we talked about and my unique background to be able to stand up against the defund the police movement because of my upbringing, where I could speak to that so personally, I couldn't have foreseen that. But I have learned since I've become mayor, just how much people superimpose their hopes and dreams for the city that they call home onto that one human being. I served in the state legislature before I was mayor for almost a decade and while that work was very fulfilling, I loved my time in Austin. No one looked to me as sort of the embodiment of Texas or of their hopes and dreams for their kids. I think maybe I was an influence on or inspirational to people who were in my direct orbit. So, you know, family members, close friends, people like that. But the mayor of Dallas is a role that requires you to interact with people from all walks of life of every racial and ethnic background that you can imagine and meet them where they are and explain to them your vision for the city they've chosen to live in and why they've made a good choice and how you're going to, to support them becoming the best person that they can be the best version of themselves. And you just learn so, so much about your city. But I think the most interesting thing about it, and what I would recommend to anyone who's thinking about a career in public service, I think the federal government gets all the attention in the United States. You know, the news programming is all about Congress, and you can probably rattle off the names of several American high-profile senators and congresspeople and a lot fewer mayors. But on the ground, in real life, people don't know their U.S. senator the way they know their mayor. And when I go to the grocery store or when I just go anywhere, the people who want to just hug me and say thank you for the things that we've tried to do over the past four years for them, and just the connection they feel to their mayor is moving. And I think even the most technocratic, policy-oriented person, which is kind of how I came into politics, that's sort of my background, would be moved by the emotional connection between the mayor and the city that they lead. And it's just an incredible feeling. And so if you're inclined to serve, I'd say think about being a mayor if you have that heart for people. It's a great job. It's the greatest job I've ever had. And it's the greatest job I ever will have.
0: My thanks there to Mayor Eric Johnson. Canada's capital city of Ottawa elected a brand new mayor last October, after incumbent Jim Watson chose not to run for re-election. The race was ultimately won by businessman Mark Sutcliffe, but runner-up Catherine McKenney put up a gallant fight. McKinney broke ground as the first non-binary candidate in the city, but the reason behind their ultimately unsuccessful run seems to have come down to the city's urban suburban voter divide. Ryan Mulligan caught up with McKenney to discuss last year's race and what's next for the city.
3: Before we get too far ahead and start talking about the mayoral campaign, I want to rewind a little bit to January 2022. And I know those dates are probably etched in your mind, but you were city council at the time. And whether it was your choice or not, you kind of became the face of Ottawa in the midst of a trucker convoy protest. And you were a very humanizing face for many residents. And those protests happened right in your ward and impacted residents you were responsible for. And it was just a lightning rod of political partisanship in Canada. And it kind of morphed into protests that were more than just about vaccines. And it became more like a, an umbrella protest for a number of issues. And can you maybe talk a bit about what was going through your mind, waking up to essentially an occupation of your ward by large semi trucks?
4: (laughs) Well, I can say this, had anyone told me that I was going to be in a three week span on, BBC, front page of the New York Times, Chicago Tribune. Like I I probably would not have run for council because I would have known that that wasn't going to be for a good reason. So when we knew the convoy was approaching, I would say it wasn't a surprise that it was happening around vaccines and that was the original intent was the mandates. But just the sheer size of it. And the staying power, if you will, of what was essentially about 20% of the convoy that originally arrived was surprising. And when they first arrived on that first weekend, I have to say, I sat in my home and was as frightened as anyone else. Like, I mm. just couldn't believe what I was seeing. But you know, as it progressed, and like I say, that 20% stayed in place, it was a very different dynamic than that first weekend. And it just became... It was that kind of underlying tension and that potential always for some violence around you that really made it incredibly important that someone went out and gave voice to it. And, you know, I was the city councillor. That's what I was elected for. I was elected to represent people, so that's what I did. And knowing this was the
3: backdrop of the start of your mayoral campaign Mm. and the toxic political rhetoric around the convoy, and my question is, did your family ever pull you aside at any moment and say, are you sure you want to
4: run? (laughs) My family did the opposite, actually. (laughs) 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 There were times that I went to them and said... I don't know, like, there's a lot of responsibility here for whoever is going to become the mayor of this city. You know, the the notion of running for mayor, you know, after the occupation, it was a funny dynamic because I think before the occupation, I expected that I would be running against, you know, three, four, maybe five others. There was always, you know, as you well know, there's always, you know, rumors and, you know, who's running. And I think that the occupation... Push people out. I think that it gave people pause. And, you know, were they really in a place where they wanted to take on that responsibility?
3: So I want to jump ahead then to the election campaign, because I think just to set the scene, you you received some pretty heavy hitting endorsements during the campaign. You had an endorsement from the former governor of the Bank of Canada and Bank of England, Mark Carney, who spent a lot of time in Ottawa and Canada's former environment minister, Catherine McKenna. You had some key endorsements from conservative commentators who, who really praised your plan from a financial stewardship perspective. I also know that you surpassed your fundraising targets. You surpassed your canvassing targets. This certainly a, a lot to be proud of. But in the end, the election still didn't go your way. And, and I think it's important to note that, you know, in many urban wards, you took about 70% of the vote, which is an incredible demonstration of what people thought of your platform. But similarly, your opponent took a high share in the suburban wards. Absolutely. And so I guess my question kind of getting into this discussion about suburban and urban divide, were you surprised to see such a sharp division along urban-suburban lines in voting?
4: The quick answer is no. You know, I've been around municipal politics, particularly in Ottawa, for a couple decades at least. So I knew that I would need to build some support in the suburbs but i knew that if a vote was going to be split two or three ways i would certainly work towards gaining that support in the suburbs but i i never expected that i would win the suburbs i don't know that we've done enough work in this city to really go into our suburban neighborhoods and have those honest discussions about what city building is they've done it in toronto and we saw the outcome of that And I believe that that hasn't happened in Ottawa in a serious way. And I think that that's something that we have to look at. And it's not to say, obviously, everything that you do that way is political, but we also have to consider our democratic institutions really are quite fragile right now. And we really need to build that back up. And we need to do that by all talking together and not just talking to ourselves. And I
3: can get Cynical sometimes about this divide. Mm -hmm. It could be difficult to see a path forward in terms of bringing these, what often feels like two conflicting views of what a city should be together. You know, when you're going door to door, it's quite humanizing. Did the conversation surprise you? And what's missing Mm -hmm. in, in that conversation?
4: Well, a couple of things. First, the candidate always gets a better reception at the door. So when I was going in and talking to people, it was for the most part, you know, always very congenial. Whether they were going to vote for me or not, we had good conversations. But also, there is this urban suburban divide. And, you know, part of my platform was to build a significant cycling infrastructure in this city over a shorter amount of time. And when you go into a suburban neighborhood, when you talk to someone who lives outside of the core, and you also don't have a functioning transit system to offer them, that's a difficult. Bill of goods, right? So I knew that. I knew you had to fix transit and invest in transit to fix it. You had to invest in other alternative transportation modes like cycling and walking so that people who need to drive, and there are many that still need to drive, could see a way forward. But right now, they just don't see that way forward.
3: I want to pick up on a really interesting point. You're talking about confidence in public institutions, but even you were a city councillor for a number of years before you ran. And I think I'm curious, you know, looking at city council, and, and this is not just unique to Ottawa. This is across North America in many ways, this kind of divide between their urban councillors and their suburban councillors. Are our governance institutions within cities set up to bridge this gap?
4: I don't think the work has been done to really bridge that urban-suburban divide. But I also don't think that people are as engaged in their municipal affairs as they could be. And mostly because most people don't understand the potential of your city. And this is not on your regular resident, because we've not done the work to show them what the potential of their cities are. Nobody understands their city budget. And yet city budgets across this country amount to over $200 billion. It's half of the federal budget. And there's no oversight. There's no real transparency. I believe there are about five people in this city who understand the city budget.
3: And I'm glad you brought that up because going into a campaign talking about kind of the nitty gritty of city finances isn't always the most, you know, motivating oh, campaign okay. issue. But one thing I think many people appreciate about your campaign is you tried to shift the dialogue around city finances. And there's an effort from your campaign to remind people that ending homelessness makes good fiscal sense and <laughs> funding public transit and getting cars off the road is actually good for a city budget. Ending sprawl is makes good financial sense and sustainability generally is good for a city's finances, and this shift that you're trying to do in the dialogue around city finances, did you find people said, oh, I get that? Or was it in the end, did it come down to what's my property tax going to be?
4: Overall, people do consider what their property tax impact is going to be. It's that bill that comes in the mail, right? Yeah. There's a number attached. I couldn't tell you what I paid in income tax last year. I could take a wild guess, but I could tell you probably to the dollar what I paid in my property taxes because I had to actually write the check or send it out of my bank account. So people do, they're concerned about their property taxes. We've also kept property taxes artificially low for a long, long time. But also when we talk about city finances, We have to think about fiscal federalism. We have to think about what happens when our federal government doesn't invest enough in cities. What happens when our provincial government doesn't invest in cities in the way that we need them to? And cities, we are responsible for most of the infrastructure in this country. And we bring in a fraction of the revenue that other levels of government do.
3: So I want to shift a little bit. The media and political conversation on gender and gender identity is often toxic. And quite frankly, it's dangerous for many people. And you identify as trans non-binary. And that was front and center as part of your campaign. Your campaign slogan was, I'm with them. And for goodness sake, whoever came up with that should, I hope, (laughs) I hope they got a raise. But I'm curious, do you feel like you were walking into the eye of the storm in in any way? I'm curious about the reaction on the doorsteps when you're canvassing. Was it hopeful? Was it frustrating? Did any conversation surprise you?
4: When I was running for mayor, you know, my gender identity really did not play itself out on the doorstep. Did not play itself out, I don't believe, in the overall outcome of the campaign. It did play itself out in social media. The amount of vileness and, you know, hatred increased almost exponentially as, as the campaign went on, certainly. I never... In this city, in the city of Ottawa, I have felt unsafe as a result of my sexual orientation or gender identity, but I do know that there are kids out there, there are people out there who do, and they are unsafe, and they often face harassment and violence. And it's for that reason that... I don't know if I, I should say I came out, I kind of surprised myself. I've always identified as trans non-binary, but I guess I just never said it until one day I was making a joke really and put up the trans flag. And I said, we're having a transgender reveal party in in my office and all heck broke loose with the media. And anyway, so I was a bit surprised by that attention. I just always assumed everybody knew. So moving forward, you know, I really felt that it was part of my role to give that exposure to make sure that, you know, young people who are struggling, whether with their sexual orientation, their gender identity, or, or anyone struggling with it, don't have to be young, could see a role model, could see someone. But if I may, there's a, a scenario where you're going door to door
3: explaining pronoun usage to mm-hmm. strangers mm-hmm. in many ways, like mostly strangers, yeah, and also then campaigning for a position, mentally that must take up a lot of space, right?
4: Yeah, it did. It did for, I remember having the conversations with some of the canvassers. So we'd all go out, you know, 20, 30 of us and it was always such a great time. And I often got asked by people, you know, what happens if someone misgenders you? Like, how should they handle that? And I said, you know, that's not your place, right? You can, of course, correct by using my pronoun as you're talking uh, about me, but it's not your responsibility at that moment to have that full conversation with people.
0: Catherine McKenney there in conversation with Ryan Mulligan. And you can find out more about Catherine's new non-profit, City Shapes, at cityshapes.ca. And that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. Remember to sign up to the podcast to get new episodes direct to you every week. The Urbanist is produced by Colorado Bello and david stevens and david also edited the show and to play you out this week well here's wiki with mayor thank you for listening city lovers so
2: do it but top on radio
3: hopeful i tried dead my soul i got a head but i'm staying cold i ain't a player but the mayor